Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. Um, pull out your device if, if you need to. And uh, get with me to Acts chapter 16. Several weeks ago, we started a series called Unshakable, if you remember that. We, so many things have happened between uh, now and then. So, you know, we made some adjustments and, and changed kind of the ple- preaching plan. But we're going to get back to it today. And we're going to look at this idea of being unshakable. And so in Acts 16, we find believers in Christ going through a situation, a literal situation where they're in prison after having been severely flogged and everything shakes. The whole place shakes. The entire prison itself is shaking and doors are flying open and they are unshaken in the sense that they're navigating this traumatic experience, but they're doing it with such poise and such gracefulness that even after having been imprisoned and flogged, they're singing and, and praying together inside the prison cell. And I wonder how do we become those kinds of individuals that we can go through a pandemic and we can go through national trauma and we can go through all kinds of challenges and difficulties, but we could be a people who are unshakable. So Acts chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 to 34, and I'm going to read it in just a minute, but we're going to look at these three different stories of conversions, three different individuals and their families who experience salvation. And so we're going to look at that and we're going to think about what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to experience conversion? And then we're going to zoom out. We're just going to do three lessons on what it means for us as the church. So Acts 16, starting in verse 13, reads like this. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. This is Paul talking. This is Uh, Paul and his ministry team, he's saying, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household, uh, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates. and, And they said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. 
The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he, threw his, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the, of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them before, brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Let's pray. Lord, right now, as we've opened your word together, we want to hear from you. We pray, God, that you would speak over each of our hearts, that you would show us your way of salvation, and you would show us then what it means to be a church who champions that salvation to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you use this time to draw each of us to yourself and to one another? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, three conversions and three lessons. So let's look at them one at a time. The first conversion story is the story of a woman named Lydia. And if you're looking at who she is and kind of what she's about, I want, we're going to speculate a little bit, but we're told that she is a dealer in fine linen, that she is a businesswoman, that she is dealing in, uh, you know, she's dealing in the pur purple cloth is how the NIV puts it. But really it's talking about these exotic textiles, these you know, these cloths that are dyed in this extravagant dye. And so it's a very expensive product and she is a dealer in it. So she's a businesswoman and we don't know the background to her story, but she is a part of this prayer group and she is a worshiper of God. She's from the city of Thyatira. So that's an Asian place. So she's a foreigner, a foreign woman who's a business owner. And when we think about where she's at spiritually, one of the things that we do is we kind of think through where people are at on a spiritual spectrum. Are they open to spirituality or are they kind of resistant to it? And where do they fall in that spectrum? And, and for Lydia, what we find is she is very open to spiritual things. We're told here that she is a worshiper of God, meaning she is somebody who believes in God and is even worshiping God and is even finding herself in, in environments where she's trying to come to know who he is and what he's done for her. So we have some of these individuals who are connected to our church and to individuals from our church. People who aren't believers yet in the sense of, you know, believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, but they are very open to it. They're exploring. They are seeking out the things of God. There are relationships that they have with other believers. And so they're, they're, they're coming into these environments and they're trying to learn more and more about who God is and what he's done. There's this spiritual openness about, about them. And so what we want to do is the same thing that Paul did. We want to connect the dots. We want to help individuals like that to understand what Christ has done for them and for them to place their faith in him. That's exactly what we find as the story unfolds in verses 14 and 15. Paul is able, along with his ministry team, he's able to proclaim the message to Lydia to connect the dots between her worship of God in general to specifically the person and work of Jesus Christ. And she comes to saving faith. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us 
to her home. So she's a worshiper of God. She's in an environment where she's trying to learn more about him. Paul and Silas come to this environment and they have the opportunity to proclaim the message of salvation to her and to make some of those implications clear so that she places her faith in Christ and is baptized. I know it's a little tricky because we see this idea of household baptism and it shows up a couple times here in our text, but we have a hard time with it because we're, we live in America and we're individuals. So we make our own decisions without a lot of reference to the other people it may affect. But in this culture, and in honestly, most cultures, big decisions are made with reference to everyone in the household. So let me try to illustrate this quickly. If I were to say, um, you know what, guys, I'm going to move to uh, Costa Rica and I anticipate becoming a surf coach and selling surfboards. If I were to make that decision, I could not make that in isolation. It would be something that Ash and my kids and I, we'd all have to arrive at together. And I'll be honest, in the last few weeks, ideas like that have crossed my mind. I would love to go to Costa Rica and be a surf instructor and sell surfboards. But if I were to make a big decision like that, I would be making a decision like that in reference to these other people. So a household baptism, in my opinion, is one of those experiences where an individual is saying, I'm going to make such a dramatic change in who I am and how I view myself and how I relate to the world that it's going to affect my entire household. And therefore, we're going to make this public proclamation of our belief in Christ for our salvation. We're going to publicly perform this, this thing called baptism. We're going to go in the water and people are then going to know we're followers of Christ. And that might affect my ability to do business and it might create some persecution for me and for my family members. So we're going to make this decision, but we're making it together. So Lydia, her heart is open to the message. God does a work in her where Paul speaks and, and she now hears the message with ears of faith. So we need to be people then who are willing to proclaim the message of salvation to people who are spiritually open. And we should be praying. This is something that I can't do. I can't change your heart. But I, I want to make the message as clear as possible so that the people that are hearing it, would, God would open their hearts to it and they would believe in it, receive salvation, and make that public proclamation of faith and baptism. Having done that, she was baptized and she begins to extend hospitality. It's one of the evidences that we see over and over in the book of Acts that people who are changed begin to love other people like they've been loved. They begin to extend hospitality like they've received hospitality from God. So that's episode number one. Lydia becomes a believer in Christ, is baptized with her family. And then we come to story number two, the second episode here of a young female who happens to be a slave. Look at verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer and we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So if we're thinking about who this second individual is, it's a young lady who is oppressed. She is a female slave. She has owners, masters who are using her for financial gain. She is in a situation where her, her life is, is not ideal. In fact, one of the commentators puts it like this. You could not sink much lower in public estimation than to be a female slave. If you're thinking about socially where she ranks, she is at the very bottom She's a female slave, she's oppressed, and she has this spirit that is causing her to, to have the ability to predict the future, which sounds kind of tame at first reading, but when you begin to think about this, this is really a demonic force in her life. 
that there's a spirit that is giving her the ability for the sake of her masters to make money, to be able to tell people some fortunes. And so she is predicting the future and, and she then begins to uh, kind of harass Paul and his ministry team. Let's look at it in verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. So her background is she's at the lowest social position. She is oppressed. She has nothing to her name. Everything she earns goes to her masters. And if you think about where she's at spiritually, she would be very aware of spiritual things. She has a spirit within her causing her to predict the future. She's totally open to it. But if I were to speculate of how she considers Christianity, how she considers God, she would probably say something like this. I believe that there is a God. I have no business with him. I believe there is a God, but I've done such horrible things that I could never be in a relationship with him. I've got a demonic spirit within me. That is not my thing. It might be someone else's thing. These guys, they're servants of the most high. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. But me, I probably have no part in this ever. So she would be open to it, but probably considering her experience would probably say of herself, that is not for me. If you knew the things that I had, that I've done, that you would know that is not my religion. But what happens in verse 18, finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to, to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. her that, I mean, we don't get a lot more details there than Paul rebuking the spirit. But what, what, what does she have then when she experiences this conversion? She has liberation, not liberation from her position as a slave, but she has this, this newfound freedom that this spirit that has been tormenting her now is, is cast away from her. She's, she's been spiritually liberated and it's a beautiful thing. And it results then in new problems for the ministry team. But let's look now at this third individual in his family, the prison officer, the prison warden, if you will, the jailer. There's a jailer who after Paul and Silas were flogged and put in prison, there was a jailer who was told, these men are your responsibility. Do not let them go. And he puts them in the inner cell and he fastens them in stocks. And uh, this guy, if we were to think about his background, I mean, he's, a, he's you know, a governmental official. He's a, you know, Roman dude. So he pro probably is just kind of doing his job. Probably just kind of thinking about, you know, I'm a keeper of the peace. I, I love what I get to do, but I just go to work. I do my job. That's who I am. This is my responsibility. This is what I need to do. If I were to speculate a little bit about what kind of spiritual person this guy might be, I'd, pr I'd probably guess he's apathetic. Probably doesn't sit around thinking, I wonder about that God of the Jews. Probably doesn't even cross his mind. Probably not thinking a lot about, oh, I wonder what God's like and how I could relate to him. He's just living his life. And while he's doing his job, he comes into contact with some very bizarre individuals. He's seen a lot of prisoners before, but none that have done this. Having been beaten and arrested and placed in the center of the prison itself, they sing, they worship, they pray. That's bizarre. How do they do that? Why do they do that? He then goes to bed apparently, but He's rudely awakened by an earthquake and he looks at the prison and he finds that everything has been flown open, that the prison itself has just been opened wide up. And so he begins to think to himself, I'm in so much trouble right now. 
all of these people who are under my care in this, in this system, it's life for life. If they go free on my watch, it's my life for theirs. So he draws his sword and he's about to take his own life. When Paul cries out to him and he says, do not harm yourself. We're all here. Okay. So this guy who maybe was apathetic before, you've got my attention. I've never seen anything like this. How is it that somebody who has been beaten and then worships, somebody who now has their liberation by the hand of God, they're, they're set free. And instead of taking their freedom and taking advantage of the circumstances, they stay put and they, they forego their freedom. They forego their liberties. And they say, look, we're still here. You don't have to harm yourself. We're all present and accounted for. All of a sudden, this guy is very concerned about matters of faith. Let's look at what he says in verse 29 and following. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and he asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You guys are a different stock. You're a different breed. I don't know what's going on with you, but I want to know something of that. What can I do to experience that salvation? They then begin to, again, explain the gospel message. Do you see how this works? There's an intrigue about things of faith, and then gospel individuals proclaim the message of salvation. So Paul then speaks. They replied, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. With the spiritual openness, they now begin to explain, here's the way of salvation. Here is what it looks like to believe in the Lord, you and your whole household. And they proclaim to them the word of the Lord to him and all those in the house. So the gospel message goes out and this guy responds by placing his faith in Jesus. He, look at verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and his household were baptized. Having heard the message of salvation, he places his faith in Christ. And again, now he's making this big decision that, that affects his entire household. And so they all get baptized in that moment. F.F. Bruce in his commentary, he says, there's some irony going on here. When you look at the words that Luke uses to describe this event, he washed their wounds, but he himself was being washed in the blood of the lamb. He tended to their wounds, but it was by the wounds of Christ that his wounds were being healed. He then was baptized. So the, the experience then is to hear the message of salvation, to believe in Jesus Christ, to make that public, to say, this is now what I am placing my faith in for salvation. And it results in joy. Look at verse 34. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. So we've got three different episodes where people and their families come to faith. Three different, very unique, very different from one another experiences of people coming to saving faith. So here's what I want to do now. I want to zoom out and I want to look at three lessons that we can learn. The first lesson that we see when we take all of these together and they're told together on purpose, the first lesson that we can see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change people. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change people's lives. When we look at all three of these individuals, we find them being reoriented to the entire world. 
that they now are beginning to understand who they are and what they've been made for and what their relationship to God ought to look like. They're really wrestling with some of the biggest questions in life that every human being goes through. If they're paying attention, we ask questions like this, who am I? And in these different episodes, we find that question of identity being addressed. Who am I at the foundational level? Who am I? How would I define myself? Would I define myself like Lydia would as a successful business owner, a female who's self-made? Would I define myself in those sorts of categories that the world would offer up for me? The female slave girl, would she say, you know, here's my identity. I'm, I'm an unfortunate person. I landed my, my life. I was born into this awful situation. System, systemically, I'm being oppressed. I have masters over me. I do this work. I make this money, but I'll never see any of it. Is that who she is? The gospel is reorienting all of these people. The, the Roman jailer, how would he define himself? Who am I? What, what on earth am I here for? Would he define himself as I'm just, you know, kind of a blue collar dude. I'm just doing my thing. I just got this job and I'm trying to do my best. Well, the gospel comes in and totally reorients each of them. Who are they now? They are children of God. They are members of the household of God. That question of identity has been addressed for them. It also touches the gospel of Jesus Christ, touches on the question of what is wrong with the human race? What is the human predicament? And that question is dealing with brokenness or sin. And most people wrestle with it at some point in their life. Even if you've grown up in a Christian household, you have to come to grips with the fact that I have standards that I've been taught my entire life and I fail to live up to them. That there are things that I know better and I still do them. There are tendencies within me that are broken. And then we look at the world right now and the condition we find it, we see brokenness on a large scale. And if we're asking the question, what is wrong with this world? What is wrong with the human experiment? We find the answer is sin. That there's been a separation from God himself, from our maker, and it has wrecked us. And we find that in systems and we find that in individuals, but people are broken. And the gospel message says there is a way to be reconciled to your maker. There is a way to be redeemed. There's a way to be set right again. And God has done that by sending his son. It answers the question of what happens when we die. One of the big questions in life is what, what will happen if I die today? Is that the end? Is the game over? Am I just trying to live for this momentary experience that I have on this earth? Am I just trying to, you know, eat and drink for tomorrow I die? Let's just have the best and most exciting life I possibly can. Let's live for the moment because when I die, it's all over. The gospel addresses that question by saying, no, you were made for more than that. You will live forever. And God has made a way for you to be with him forever in eternity. God has set eternity in the hearts of all mankind and the gospel message shows us how we can access that experience of faith that leads to life everlasting. Finally, it addresses the question of purpose. What am I here for? Why was I made? What am I supposed to do with this life of mine? What can I do that would be, you know, that would contribute to the greater good of humanity? All people usually wrestle with things like this and the gospel message is telling us that God has made us for himself and each person that we have, sorry, these are all, each, each person has this intrinsic value that God is now giving them this incredible purpose. 
that he's saying, no, you're for, you've, you've been made by me and for me. And there are things that are unique about you that, that the world desperately needs. You have purpose in this world. The gospel message, one of the lessons we see is how powerful it is. It's powerful enough to change people's lives. It changes all of these individuals and their households. Here's the second lesson that we can see. The second lesson is that the gospel of Jesus Christ empowers its messengers. The gospel of Jesus Christ endows us with the ability to represent God to a watching world. And it is a very powerful force. On the one hand, what we find is the messengers of the gospel go through very traumatic things and they, um, they navigate it well. So one of the things we have to say is when you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Christ, it doesn't get easier. It doesn't automatically just go really, really well for you. In fact, in, in a lot of cases, it goes the opposite direction. And one of the false narratives that we have in, in Christianity today is just kind of this message of blessing for the people of God. Place your faith in him. It's easy peasy. God just starts showering you with all these good things. We call that the prosperity gospel and it's not right. But when you place your faith in Christ, you get this calling to make the news known, to be witnesses, to tell other people. And often that kind of leads you into harm's way. So Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're doing ministry. They're telling people the way of salvation. And that gets them in trouble. It, it causes hardship for them. They're then beaten. They're flogged. They're severely flogged. And then they're imprisoned. And in the midst of that, here's the point that we're trying to make. The gospel of Jesus Christ is empowering its messengers so that when you go through those traumatic experiences, it changes you. It doesn't, it, you know, you go through these hard things and you don't just complain. Go, well, how, why is this happening to me? God, I'm just trying to do what you asked me to do. Why am I in prison? Why, is, why does my back look like this? Come on. No, it changes them so that when they're in prison, they're praying and they're worshiping. They're different. They've been endowed with power from on high to be a different kind of people. They experience this hardship in verses 19 to 21 and um, the, the uh, owners of the slave girl get really upset with the loss of their income. And uh, they bring Paul and Silas before this, the magistrates and then before the angry mob. And they really incite a riot here. And they're saying these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. And so their faithfulness to the gospel, having been empowered to proclaim the news in a way that results in salvation for multiple individuals now, it lands them in harm's way. And John Stott comments on this and he says, these individuals, these masters of the slave girl, they were very clever. They were really upset about the economic loss that they were experiencing, but they were, they were also hinting at these shades of inherent racism that were present in that society. And I mentioned that just to say that what we're going through right now, it's, it's not new stuff. What we're going through right now as a nation is not some like... You know, oh, this has never happened before. No. Oppression and racism and loss of economics and hatred and malice and strife, it's been going on forever. And messengers of the gospel are people who can navigate that well. And sometimes we get ourselves into even more trouble by speaking very clearly into it. But we're a different kind of people. We go through hard stuff and we, we worship. We go through hard stuff and God inspires us to, to worship and to pray and to trust him in the midst of it. 
And I hope that that's true of your life, that even though you, you might feel like you're being severely flogged, just like they were, you could still worship God. Well, let's be honest, that might sound great, right? Cor, I love that idea. I would love to be the kind of person who's navigating the pandemic and all the stuff going on in our nation right now. And I'm just, you know, singing hymns and praying. And I just, I'm level-headed and even keel and yep, gospel's doing that in me. But I think a lot of us would say, that sounds great. And I believe that's possible. But where I'm at right now is not there. I'm somewhere else. I'm not living in that gospel-empowered state where I have a gospel peace about me and a gospel humility about me. Really, I'm frustrated and I'm annoyed. And the great news about the gospel is it's powerful enough to handle that too. I love this. And Tim Keller pointed it out when he was teaching on this passage, but he, he noticed that with the slave girl, the motivations of Paul and his team were not perfectly pure. And I like that. Look at what happens in verse 18. The, the slave girl is following them around and she's saying, these are servants of the most high God telling you the way to be saved. And she keeps it up. And look at the language. I love how the NIV puts it here. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, get lost. He was so annoyed, right? He was frustrated with the circumstances that were going on. And he was so annoyed by it that he said, I'm done with this couple, a uh, few weeks ago now, I got done with church and I went home and my neighbors have a pool and they're like, come over, let's swim and let's just hang out. And I said, guys, I don't want to see anybody. I don't really like people right now. I'm annoyed. And I didn't hang out with them. And then, you know, in recent conversations with these different neighbors and individuals, um, they're, they're talking to me about that. And and there's something about even that honesty that is actually kind of drawing them in. And e even last night I was talking to a, to a neighbor friend and, and they were just kind of magnetized to that. Here's what's so cool about the gospel. There are going to be moments where you are not, you know, level-headed, even-keeled, perfectly motivated. Sweetheart, I love you. I'm so sorry that you're going through this oppression. I want to do something to help you. No, sometimes your motivation might look like, I am so sick and tired of this. But the gospel is powerful enough to be at work even there. That even in our shortcomings and in our inadequacies, God can use that to bring about liberation. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So secondly, the gospel empowers the people of God to get about this mission. Here's the third thing. And this is really important for us. The gospel creates a church in all of its diversity and beauty. There's a reason why Luke told this story and it wasn't just chronological. It wasn't that he was like, okay, we went here, this happened. Then we went here, this happened. Then we went here, this happened. He told these three different episodes on purpose to help us understand that the church is a place where people from all kinds of different backgrounds come together under the banner of Christ. We, be, we began talking about this last week, but the church is a place of unity where there are differences, but we do, not, we do not separate over those differences. We are a family together under Jesus Christ. This story tells us the story about people. And if you think again about their backgrounds, they are, they are incredibly different from each other. 
a rich business owner, an oppressed slave girl, a Philippian jailer. They're all in different stages of life. They're all in different stations in life. And the gospel brings them together. And these are the founding members of the Philippian church. John Stott puts it like this. It'd be hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the prison warden. Racially, socially, and psychologically, they were worlds apart, yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. When we think about what the gospel is able to do, it draws us together. And we're not looking for everyone to think the same, to have the same ideologies. We're not looking for everyone to vote the same. We're not looking for everyone to have the same opinions on cultural events right now. We're looking for us to band together around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're trusting that the gospel is powerful enough to do that, that it brings people together. We are unified without uniformity. We have incredible diversity, and that is a great thing. One of the prayers of Jewish men, and you can look this up for yourself, but John Stott mentions it in his commentary. One of the popular prayers of Jewish men, they would pray this in the morning. They would say this, thank you, Lord, that you've not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. They would get up in the morning and they would say, God, thank you. Thank you for who you've made me a privileged individual in this community of faith. But thank you that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile. And here's what the gospel does. A woman, a slave, a Gentile, here's your church. Here are all these people different from each other, incredibly different from each other, but in Christ they are one. The gospel puts it like this, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're after as a church. Unity under Jesus Christ in the midst of all of the diversity that we bring to the table, unified under his name. So as we think about these three lessons then, the gospel is powerful enough to change lives. Some people today, maybe you're listening at home, some people today need to trust in Jesus for salvation. And they need to take, you need to take that step of faith to say, I'm going to go public with this. I'm going to be baptized. Some of us need to believe that's what God is calling us to do. I've heard the message of what Jesus has done for me, his saving work on the cross for me, his death, burial, and resurrection for me. I believe that, I trust that, and I'm going public with that ASAP. Some of us need to recognize that we need that power from on high. The gospel message, helping us to be gospel people, having ordinary conversations with people that are spiritual, that are helping them to connect the dots between their life and the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need to believe that the gospel is powerful enough to use us and we need to get after it. And some of us need to repent because we've failed to embrace this thing that, that God has done, which is to bring together people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And if we're being honest, we would rather, we would prefer that everyone that we hang out with and everyone that we talk to and everyone that we interact with is like us. And we just want it to be comfortable and safe and we don't want people challenging our ideas or saying something different than what we already believe. We need to repent. We need to say, under Jesus Christ, all kinds of people come together and find home and find rest and find salvation. So I would ask that you would stand with me now and I'm gonna pray. And uh, let's ask that God would help each of us to respond appropriately today. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the news 
of the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, and what that does. It changes everything. One day he'll come back and he'll set all things right. And all these concerns that we have right now, these light and momentary troubles will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, God, as a church, we want to be your gospel people. We want to create a beautiful and diverse community under Christ. We want to proclaim the news of his salvation to the ends of the earth. Help us to do that, God. We pray in your name. Amen.